to begin our walk through this first book of the Bible, this first and most foundational book to all of Scripture, to all of the teachings of Scripture, to all the doctrines in Scripture. Uh, Genesis is foundational for us. Uh, the teachings and doctrines, just as the teachings and the doctrines of the Bible are foundational to us as, as God's people, as Christ's bride, as new creations, uh, as Christ's ambassadors of that new creation as we live here now in the old creation, even now in the 21st century. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that with the light of Christ shining in our minds as we go through this book, that we will be able to see how all of the issues of our own lives, all of the issues that we see in the world find their fountainhood, their fountainhead, their source here in this book. So this morning, we are going to look at Genesis chapter 1, the first verse, and we're going to do so in two points. Our first point will be, Hear, O Israel, I am the Lord your God, where we're going to explore the most basic reality that is often overlooked or neglected as people go through uh, Genesis, and that most basic reality is that this book was written to introduce Israel to the God who had just delivered them from bondage in Egypt and explain to them their history prior to that bondage. And this most basic reality of this book is going to lead us into some thoughts in our second point, which is Christ, not Darwin, where we are going to look at the fact that because this book is about God telling His covenant people their history, telling them about their forefathers, and not only how they came to be enslaved, but how literally everything came to be, and because this is a story of redemption, that is the purpose of this book. We are going to set our hearts on that story of redemption and not on the scientific debates of our day that may stem from the details found in this book. Well, hopefully you've found your way by now to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our guests, many unbelievers among us, Hear now the words of the only true and living God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His holy and infallible word. You may be seated. Let's go to Him now in prayer and ask Him for help during this time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have gathered us together this morning to glorify yourself among us. And as we just sung, we you trust that you do that by showing us Christ in your word and we have gathered together to have you minister to us through your word and spirit, for there is nowhere else that we can go for the words that speak to us and deliver to us eternal life. I ask that by the help of your spirit, you would take these words, these first ten words of scripture, and plant them down deep in us, Cause them to bear fruit in our lives, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be believers of your word, and we would be doers of the implications that flow out of your word. So we ask these things not only for ourselves, but our sister churches. We ask this for Bible Baptist Church in Galway, North Carolina, the Reform at work. We also ask this for our sister church down in Wilts County, Millers Creek Baptist Church. Father, please 
work among our brothers and sisters there just as we plead with you to work among us here. Father, show yourself powerful that you would so move among your people to cause us to be conformed to the image of your Son and that we would live in this world as doers of your word, as citizens and ambassadors of the new heavens and new earth, that we would go out and proclaim your gospel, baptize those that you bring to faith and repentance, and teach them to obey all that you have commanded. And so, Father, we lift up these our sister churches to you and ask that you would work in them, that you would use them in their communities to bring all things under the feet of your Son, and that you would raise up in their churches missionaries that would go to places where your gospel is not, that you would continue your work in your Son by your Spirit to seek and save that which is lost, so that not one drop of His redeeming blood would fall to the ground wasted. Father, we ask for this kindness to our brothers and sisters as we ask for it for ourselves. Father, we also want to lift up Your Son's bride in places on this, Your creation, where Your name is hated and they are persecuted. For the sake of your name, Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Somalia who endure severe persecution. Father, we ask for your special grace among them, that you would give them the mind of Christ, that they would count it a privilege to be found worthy to suffer for his name, for his glory, for his kingdom. And that you would be pleased to be merciful to the people of Somalia. That you would subdue them to yourself, King Jesus, through the preaching of your gospel, through your people. So, Father, we ask for your sustaining grace among our brothers and sisters there. And, Father, as we turn our attention to our time together now where you are sustaining us, you are preserving us to the day of our Savior's return. And He is right now seated on the throne of the majesty on high, ruling over us. And He is our head. And He is nourishing His body, protecting it, providing for it, sustaining it, Oh, Father, would you now bless his labors through your word and by your spirit in our lives to conform us to his image. And we ask all these things for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. In a story entitled Something by a Tolstoy, A young man named Jacob, whose father owned a bookstore, married his childhood sweetheart, Lila. And after Jacob's father died, he took over the bookstore and he moved his young family into the apartment over top the bookstore. Jacob loved Lila. He loved his bride. He loved the life that they had together in the bookstore But Lila wanted more. She wanted to travel. And after being enticed to join a group that traveled around Europe singing, Lila decided to leave her husband, to leave their life together, and to go on her own adventures. Jacob, of course, was devastated. And as Lila left, he reached into his pocket and gave her a key 
to the front door of the bookstore and told her, you had better keep this because you will want it someday. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can get away from it. You will come back sometime and I will be waiting here for you. So Lila kissed Jacob and left. And Jacob, devastated, of course, withdrew into his bookstore, into his life of the books, doing nothing more but immersing himself in reading the books surrounding him and grieving his wife, leaving him and waiting for her to return to him. And after 15 years, Lila did return at Christmas time. When she walked into the bookstore, Jacob rose from his desk. Jacob didn't recognize Lila. He asked her, do you want a book? Lila was startled that Jacob didn't recognize her, but she gathered herself and said to him, I do want a book, but I've forgotten the name of it. And she told him a story. She told him their story. The story of a newly married couple who lived in an apartment over top of a bookstore of a young, ambitious wife who left her husband to seek a career, but who could never relinquish the key her husband had given her when they parted. But Jacob's face showed no recognition of this story. Their story wasn't connecting. To him And Lila realized that he had lost touch, that he no longer knew the purpose of why he was waiting and why he had been grieving for so long. But now, all he remembered was the waiting and the grieving itself. And so she said to him, you must remember it. The story of Lila and Jacob. And after a long pause, Jacob looked at her and said, there is something familiar about that story. I think I have read it somewhere. It comes to me that it's something by Tolstoy. Dropping the key, Lila left the shop, and Jacob returned to his desk, to his reading, completely unaware that the love that he had waited for had come and had gone. Well, this morning, as we begin our walk through the book of Genesis by looking at this first verse of sacred scripture, I have no doubt that some of us are sitting in here this morning and our zeal for the Lord is as fresh as the morning dew. That it is like the morning dew, covering and watering and nourishing and sustaining everything in our lives, protecting us from the beating sun of the world. That we hear these first words of Genesis with faith, and with longing for a fuller grasp, a fuller understanding of them, a closer intimacy with our Creator, and a fuller understanding of the glory of our God, which the psalmist teaches us is declared by creation. I also have no doubt that some of us sitting here this morning hear these words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, But we hear them like the bookstore owner heard the words of the story of Lila and Jacob. They are familiar words to us. They are words that we have read so often they've become background noise, meaningless to us. After all, they are words read by most Christians every year on January 1st as we restart our resolution to read through the Bible, which most of us have fallen off the train by now. They are words that strike a familiar chord within us, but because of the passage of time, because of our familiarity, that is not right, but you get it, our familiarity with them, because of the distractions of life, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of our having abundance of everything we need here in the West, because of these things, we have forgotten our desperate need for this Creator of the heavens and earth. Like Jacob, we have forgotten our first love. And so, as it was with his depression, our desires for other things 
the other things of this world have entered into our lives and has choked these precious words and caused them to be unfruitful in us. It has caused us to forget our first love, forget who we are waiting for, to take our eyes off the prize, to cause us to stop striving for that holiness, that perseverance of faithfulness, that perseverance of love, of anticipation, of obedience to the end, without which we have been instructed no one will see the Lord or inherit His kingdom. Beloved, this morning as we look at this first verse of the Bible, whether your love is hot or cold or somewhere in between, lukewarm, my prayer is that God would use our time together to help you to gaze upon, to meditate upon, to behold your God. So let's begin seeking to do so with our first point this morning. Hear, O Israel, I am the Lord your God. Perhaps that is an unusual thought for us as we consider these first words of Genesis. Because we tend to focus our attention as we go through the first chapters of Genesis, as we consider God's creative activities, we tend to focus our attention on the length of days. Instead of being an absolute all that these first words of sacred Scripture revealed to Israel then, and they reveal to us now our Creator, our Sustainer, their Redeemer who had just delivered them, and our Redeemer. And it is the fact of God as our Redeemer and His desire to tell His redeemed people about Himself, which is the singular reason that accounts for why these words exist. So as we begin our walk through Genesis, we need to begin by answering the most fundamental question about sacred Scripture, which is, what is the Bible? Is the Bible a book that needs to be subjected to scientific inquiry? Is the Bible a book that needs to be subjected to higher critical questions about the history of religions of men? Beloved, though the Bible does have implications for questions of science, it does have implications for questions about the study of Religion, the Bible, is not fundamentally about those things. The Bible is not fundamentally a, bi a biology textbook or geological textbook or an astrological textbook. The Bible is not fundamentally a recounting of what a particular group of people thought about a God and the religious activities that they came up with according to their own imaginations of how they were going to worship that God of their imaginations. Beloved, the Bible is God's revelation about His actions in history to redeem a people for Himself. And as such, it is beyond human questioning. It is God telling us about Himself. The direction of the Bible is from God to us, not the other way around. The Bible is God's telling us about what He has done in history to redeem a people for Himself. And we have no more right to question that, what God is telling us He has done, than we have the right to hear this revelation and ask questions such as, is your name really Yahweh? Is Jesus really your son? Are you really the creator? Because in asking those types of questions, those who ask them, they are not clever. They are merely parroting or repeating the tempter's question. Did God really say? And so as we consider what the Bible is and we are thinking about where this book of Genesis fits into that, we must remember that Genesis 1 was written by a man 
named Moses under the direct revelation and superintending inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that that is really basic, but we need to think about the fact that Moses wrote these words after God had delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. While we don't know exactly when Genesis 1-1 was written by Moses, whether on Mount Sinai or elsewhere in the wilderness, what we do know is that these words in Genesis 1-1 and everything that follows in the book of Genesis functioned to inform this redeemed people of Israel, these slaves of Egypt, that the God who delivered them from slavery was their God. This God that they feared so as He descended upon Mount Sinai and fire and smoke, thick clouds, lightnings, peals of thunder and loud trumpet blasts. This God who delivered them, who was making them His covenant people. He had set His redeeming affections on them and in doing so had set them apart from all the other people on earth to be a people holy to Himself. A people that could not have any other gods. And a people who could not believe the stories about other gods or worship other gods of the nations that would be surrounding them. And we are aided in thinking about this by remembering how God delivered these slaves from Egypt. Remember that Israel was enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years, surrounded by Egyptians whose gods seemed to be able to keep them in bondage. Whose gods seemed to be able to prevent their gods, the God of their forefathers, from delivering them. And remember that the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptian were not just random, but they were judgments to show all Egyptians and Israelites that Yahweh was greater than Egypt's gods. Remember also that after delivering them from slavery, God was going to bring them into a land where they would be surrounded by peoples and nations that worshipped false gods and had their own false stories about creation. Beloved, hear these things and have your eyes open to see why this recounting of God's creation is so important. Israel was going to be surrounded by nations and peoples whose stories of creations were stories where their gods had defeated other gods. And that the heavens and the earth were the end result of their gods winning a cosmic struggle with rival gods of chaos. And so their gods of order took the defeated gods of chaos and formed everything and made the heavens and the earth. And so remember, remembering those things, and then hear again the words of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Words that do not include rival gods. Words that do not include cosmic struggle. Words that proclaim to these people delivered from slavery in Egypt and on their way to a promised land that their God, Yahweh, is a God who has no rivals. Their God is from everlasting to everlasting. Their God dwells above time and space. Their God created time and space, not with a cosmic struggle, but just by His divine Word. A divine Word so powerful that He did not create from things that already existed, but He created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them ex nihilo, out of nothing. These first ten words of the Bible here in Genesis 1-1 instructed Israel then, and they instruct you now, beloved, as the author 
of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And these first ten words of the Bible are, foundation, are the foundation upon which another ten words in the Bible are built. The ten words also known as the Ten Commandments that begin, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, beloved, in creation as well as in recreation, in redemption, our God has no rivals. Creation ex nihilo is a jewel in your God's crown. Nothing forced Him to create the heavens and earth. He did not struggle with anything or any other gods to create the heavens and the earth. Far from a struggle, your God has all life in and of Himself. He has all glory and goodness and blessedness in and of Himself. Your God is all-powerful and wise. He is able to create and sustain everything that He does create. And so, beloved, as we read these first ten words of our Bible, your challenge today is not so different than their challenge at Mount Sinai. Your challenge today, in the 21st century, like theirs, is to reject the gods of the peoples and the cultures and the nations surrounding you and to cling to and unquestionably obey the God who has made everything for His glory and your salvation. And from these truths, beloved, come words and terms like God's aseity, God's omnipotence, God's omnipresence, God's omniscience, far from being lofty, Theological terms, beloved, these are words of comfort and encouragement for us. Words that should cause you to behold your God and stand in awe of Him. That your God is not dependent upon anything outside of Himself. He is all self-sufficient and needs nothing. He is a say. That your God is powerful enough to create time itself with His Word and to create space and matter from nothing. He is omnipotent. That your God is wise enough to order all things to ensure that whatsoever comes to pass is for your eternal good. Your God is omniscient. And that there is nowhere you can go, as we just sang, or you can be taken where your God will not be with you. Even to the end of the ages, there are no heights or depths. There are no dungeons or dark places where an enemy can steal you away to where your God will not be with you. He is omnipresent. Beloved, this God, your God, that we speak of, who is powerful and wise enough to create the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, did so in order to glorify Himself. And He has chosen to glorify Himself by not only delivering a people from slavery in Egypt, but by delivering you from slavery to sin and Satan. Beloved, your God has set you free. He has delivered you from being a captive of anxiety. He has delivered you from being held captive by pornography or the other sins that so easily seem to beset you. He has delivered you from being a slave to our culture or trying to be on the right side of their history. Beloved, the Son has set you free from those things and you are free indeed. He has so loved you and so worked for you that though you fall, in these and other ways, though you fall into sin and temptation, you will rise in repentance and faith. Beloved, God created the heavens and the earth that He might lavish grace upon you in His Son. 
And that in eternity, in a new creation, in a new heavens, and a new earth, He might show you the immeasurable riches of His grace and love for you. Such that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Beloved, those truths are not disconnected from Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 is where those truths begin. God has redeemed us from slavery to sin and Satan for a new heavens and a new earth where sin and death and Satan will be no more. But beloved, He has created this current heavens and earth to prepare us for that one which is to come. Just as He created the wilderness wanderings to prepare these former slaves of Egypt for the promised land of Israel. And so while we remain here in the old creation, let us embrace wonder and awe as we hear and see the heavens declaring the glory of God. The psalmist teaches us that they pour forth speech every day Day after day after day, what you look around and see and taste, touch, smell, and hear and take for granted is pouring forth speech for you to hear that your God is glorious and awesome and power and wonder and worthy of your praise. Let us heed their words and let your hearts be enthralled with the majesty of your God. Let these things elicit praise from our mouths, for your God is near you, beloved. He loves you. Do not let Satan steal the seed of faith and deceive you into spending your life in this old creation, in this wilderness wandering for us, seeking to just consume the good things of God in this old creation only for your flesh. Beloved, what is visible? that you experience, what you enjoy in this old creation should lift your hearts and minds to the one who is invisible. Look to the visible sun and see the invisible creator who provides warmth for you, who changes seasons for you, who causes food to grow and nourish you, and sustain you by it, that you might serve Him. Look to the visible sun and praise your invisible Creator. Look to the galaxies and be in awe of their dimensions and vastness and see your invisible Creator, all-powerful, who can fit them in the cup of His hand. Consider the time and the effort it has taken men and women with great machinery to make just a few miles of 221 from 421 to West Jefferson and see the power of your invisible God who merely spoke. And it was. Look to the scarred surface of the moon. Consider the gravitational forces of Jupiter and other giant planets and see your invisible God's loving, providential, sustaining kindness of this earth for His image bearers. Consider the patience of the Lord as salvation, as Peter instructs us. Consider His special love for you, His people, that He has not allowed an asteroid the size of New York to plow into the earth, to destroy every living thing. That He has sustained this. That His people might come to know Him. Look at the power of the raging seas. Power of hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis. And fear your invisible God, who with only a word can bring these terrors upon mankind. Look at the intricacies and the irreducible complexities of a human cell and consider that every one of us has some 32 trillion of them in our bodies and see the wisdom and mercy of our invisible God who sustains them, 
who right now is upholding them by the word of His power that you might breathe your next breath, that your heart might beat its next beat. And that with just a word, we who presume upon our life, our youth, our vigor, with just a word, He can stop it all. Look even smaller. Consider the atoms that make up those 32 trillion cells in your, bo- in your body. And consider the power that is unleashed in a nuclear bomb when microscopic atoms are just split in two. Look at these things and reject the gods of this world that seek to tell you science did that. Consider the power, the omnipotence of your invisible God and cause that to stir up within you thanksgiving and praise. Beloved, when we see all the color, touch all of the textures, taste all of the flavors, smell all the aromas of creation, behold your invisible God and know that spirit-enabled contemplation of these things can make the simplest among us wise. For because our God is the maker of the heavens and earth, it has forever been and will always be true that the fear of the Lord is not the end result of examination. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, which can lead to examination, which can lead to praising Him. And it is only the fool who despise the wisdom and instruction that the Lord has given in His creation. Brothers and sisters, hear all of these things and realize that just as Israel heard the truth at Mount Sinai and that the words of our passage today, in the beginning God created the heavens and and the earth, these words demanded the response that they should have no other gods before Him. Beloved, the same is true for you. Just as these words demanded that the people of old, Moses and all of those at Sinai, and all those who would come after, Samuel, David, and Isaiah, and and Jeremiah, and Amos, and Zephaniah, these words demanded that they believe by faith that the universe was created by the Word of God. And know, beloved, that the same demand is put on you today. Just as the Israelites had to believe that the God who delivered them was their creator, so too must you. Just as the Israelites had to reject the creation stories of Egypt and the creation stories of the peoples and nations that were going to surround them in the promised land, so must you likewise reject the creation stories of an eternal universe or of a multiverse or of a naturalistic Big Bang or of Darwinian evolution. Just as the Israelites must have rejected the gods of Egypt and the nations, so too you must reject the modern gods of humanism, that you are the measure of all things, man is, of materialism, that we're just meat and bones all the way down, atoms in motion, banging against each other, just the end results of physical processes. You must reject the modern religion of naturalistic, secular atheism, where man is his own God and the determiner of his own destiny. Your temptation, beloved, is not so much different than it was for Israel. The question put to you is, will you make the same mistake Israel did and hoard after the gods of the peoples and nations around them? Or will you cling to Christ? Will you cling to His Word, His declarative Word over you? That is the question put to you. Not just now as we're reading Genesis 1.1, But every day of your life, Satan, the remaining corruptions of your own flesh, and this world are constantly 
picking at you, trying to find that place of weakness where it can bring doubt and sin into your life so that Satan can devour you. That is his desire, beloved. So learn from these things that are written for your benefit. Just as the challenge was for Israel, so too it is for us. We must believe that by, God's fa- by faith, God's wisdom, which we must admit is foolishness to the world, will in the end be proven right by her children. Beloved, we must be a people that declares to the unbelieving world that this creation, this heavens and earth, that they declare the glory of our God and that the earth is full of His handiwork. Just as Israel, in hearing Genesis 1-1 for the first time, needed to behold their God and know that He who formed the heavens and earth, the sea and all that is in them, was likewise forming them into a people for His own possession, a redeemed community, a redeemed humanity, who like a new Adam and Eve were meant to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So too, as we are working our way through these opening chapters of Genesis, we must see that this redeemed community of Israelites must not be like Adam and Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But rather they must look to the heavens and see the stars and behold the wisdom and power of their God and trust in the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They must trust in Him with all of their heart, not lean on their own understanding. They must submit to Him and obey His Word, and acknowledge Him in all of their ways, and trust that He is going to make their paths straight. They must seek to see His will, His revealed will in the Torah, being done among them on earth, as it is in heaven. Beloved, hear these familiar words, and feel the intimate connection that they have to you. For these things were written down for your benefit, for you whom the end of ages has come upon. Beloved, just as Israel first received these words in the wilderness, as they were being molded and shaped and formed into a people prepared to enter into a promised land, so too you today are hearing these words, and may God grant that you would hear them afresh, that you would be a people who realize that you too are a wilderness people in this old heavens and earth, a people looking for a promised land, looking for a city whose builder is God, a people being molded and shaped and ruled over right now by our King Jesus, by His Word and Spirit. A people right now being prepared and sustained by word and sacrament to enter into that eternal promised land when our King who has delivered us from slavery comes again to deliver us into His glorious eternal kingdom. Beloved, this is what your King requires of you. And it is what your lives must be shaped by These truths are what your lives must be consumed in to seek to follow Christ without obeying all He has commanded you, to seek to obey Christ without your brothers and sisters in a local church would be just as ridiculous a thing as it would have been for these Israelites to seek to follow Yahweh without living in the promised land. To seek to follow Yahweh without offering sacrifices, without observing feasts and Sabbaths, without ever visiting His temple. In essence, beloved, it would be to make the same mistake of Israel in their wilderness wanderings when they longed to return to Egypt in order that they might whore after the gods of the nations around them. 
Beloved, the things of this world are constantly seeking to draw you away just as the nations surrounding Israel drew them away from their covenant with God. But you must persevere. You must see what happened. Those things written for your benefit and learn lest you fail to attain that eternal rest in the eternal promised land. Beloved, as you think about these difficulties that come upon us day after day, every day is sufficient with its own troubles. As you think about these things and the endurance required, the perseverance required, the labor required, is your heart stirred? to think about the resurrection that we heard about last week. That resurrection some 2,000 years ago that guarantees that we who have died with Him to to this old creation, we who have been crucified with Christ, who have been made new creations, is your heart stirred to think that when Jesus, who is preparing the new heavens and earth for us, when He returns, that we, with all of God's people, will be made perfect in holiness and body and soul, that when this happens, we will not be reading or talking about it, but we will experience the first three words of Scripture, not told by Moses, but in our own flesh. We shall see and experience in the beginning as the old creation created by the spoken word will pass away and be replaced by new heavens and earth that will be filled by the the results of the redemptive blood of that incarnate word that spoke the first creation into existence. We will see that in our flesh at the resurrection. Having focused our attention today on God's opening words to the people He had just delivered from slavery in Egypt, as we begin to wind down, I want to point out something in the weeks ahead that may be surprising to some of you as we go through Genesis 1. So let's look at our second point today, Christ, not Darwin. I am a young earth creationist. And our church's confession of faith explicitly teaches and promotes six-day creationism. But you may be surprised to learn that as we are going through Genesis 1, what I am saying right now will probably be the most time that we are going to spend on the scientific debates about the length of days in Genesis 1. Although Genesis 1 most definitely has implications for the age of the earth and questions and challenges such as evolution, the implications are moral questions more so than they are scientific ones. Beloved, we need to recognize that if we spend all of our energies and thoughts on scientific questions... If we were to do that, then we would be neglecting the intention of the Holy Spirit in inspiring, inscripturating, and preserving Genesis 1 for these last some thousand years. Now, this is not to say there's no place for those questions. In fact, Pastor Quinn will probably be dealing with some of those questions as we go through uh, of God's providence and of God's creation in the coming months in Sunday school, but when preaching the Bible on the Lord's day and wanting and desiring to be ministered to by the Holy Spirit as we listen, beloved, there is a better way than to focus all of our labors on scientific inquiries. There is a way of looking at Genesis 1 that will focus our attention where it belongs, on Christ not Darwin. There's a way of looking at Genesis 1 that will focus our attention on the glory of God, not the Big Bang Theory or the Gap Theory or the Day-Age Theory. 
if we learn from our Savior's own way of interpreting sacred Scripture, as he, as Luke tells us in the 24th chapter of his Gospel, where he writes, then he said, that's Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, including Genesis chapter 1, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. If we learn that Jesus wants us to see here in Genesis 1 those things concerning himself. If we want to feast on that meat from the word, then we will not be satisfied with filling ourselves on the mud pies of scientific debate when compared to the glories of the meat of Christ to be found here. My beloved, during this time, during our time together on the Lord's Day, when Christ rules over His people in a special way as we've gathered together, and His Spirit ministers to us in a special way, we are going to seek to be enthralled, to be enraptured, to be in awe of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit as He has inspired Moses. Beloved, if we look and dig for everything here written about Jesus, then we will not be satisfied to look at Darwin here in Genesis or have our agenda set by his challenges, but rather we will find ourselves enamored with our Redeemer. In looking at the Scripture for the answers that it intends to give us, we will find that we cut the legs out from under the debates found in discussions about geology or astrology or biology because our eyes will not be consumed with this old creation, but our eyes will be lifted to the eternal glory such that we will see that protology, which is the study of first things, is about eschatology, the study of last things. And because of hermotiology, the study of sin, we need soteriology, the study of salvation, in order that it would bring about a renewed anthropology, the study of man, to its eschatological end-time goal, which was and has been the purpose from the beginning. Now, to break that down, not using the theological terms... By focusing on Christ and not Darwin, as we go through Genesis 1, we will see in the beginning that the point was for mankind to enter into God's Sabbath rest and to attain to the glory of God that we all fell short of when Adam sinned. But because of Adam's sin... God sent His one and only Son into the world, a second Adam, who did not fall short of God's glory, but rather He has attained it for us in all, in all that He did in His life, death, and resurrection. Such that what God intended in the beginning is exactly what is going to be accomplished through Christ in the end. Or as Dr. Richard Barcellus says it, the end is better than the beginning. Beloved, we must not let Satan take our eyes off the main thing, the glory of Christ, in order to deal with lesser things, secular debates. The secular, the seed of the serpent, must not dictate how we interpret or how we think about Scripture any more than Eve should have let Satan dictate to her how she thought about God's revelation concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, as we close, brothers and sisters, and prepare to enter into a time of reflection, I want us to notice one last thing that we will be developing in the coming weeks. The first words of Genesis... In the beginning, imply a future goal. Why is that? Because beginnings have ends. 
Genesis 1-1 represents the beginning of God's temple building. A temple that was the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that was in them. A temple where God placed His image and intended to dwell with His image bearers. And it is the fall that we are going to get to in Genesis 3 that necessitated that this temple building activity shrink from the whole cosmos of the heavens and earth down to the tabernacle in Israel, in the wilderness, and then later the Jerusalem temple. So in the beginning, it was everything. Because of sin, it shrunk down to the temple. But when God sends His only begotten Son into the world to go about uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Himself, when God sends Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, He inaugurates, He begins the final stages of the redemption of heavens, of the heavens and earth temple. And what is Christ doing now? He is building His temple. We read about it in Acts. He extends it beyond Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth into every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. And when our King returns from Mount Zion and brings with Him the new heavens and earth, what God began to accomplish in Genesis 1-1 will be realized as the entire universe will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God who will once again dwell in His temple with His holy image bearers. This, beloved, is the message of Genesis. And this is what we will seek to draw out from Genesis as we move forward in the coming weeks, months, and yes, years ahead. Desiring to read and to glean from Scripture all the things that it has for us. To dig as for hidden treasure. And reading and gleaning from Scripture in this way will protect us from growing dull and depressed. It will protect us from forgetting our first love. It will protect us from forgetting what this life is all about. It will protect us from being like Jacob, the bookstore owner, in our opening illustration. Looking for the glories of Christ, even here in Genesis 1, will keep us from the depression and anxiety and forgetfulness of Jacob as he awaited for his beloved bride to return to him. And so as you hear these familiar words today, beloved, have the cares and trials and just the day after day after day, ordinary things of this world cause these words that are familiar to you to not stir you. Have, these, have the things of this world failed to grow strangely dim to you? as you lift your eyes to the horizon of eternity where your treasure is and where your help comes from. If so, my prayer is that you would be reinvigorated today. That He who said, in the beginning, has also said to you, beloved, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our God is able. He has said it, and He will do it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this time together. Father, as we have considered these first words of sacred Scripture, that you have revealed to us in order that we might know you, our Creator, 
in order that we might consider your power and your glories, you our Redeemer, and it might set our hearts aflame, our zeal be renewed, our longing being increased for that day when the new heavens and earth come in the beginning of eternity. Oh, Father, help us as we consider these words written to a a people wandering in the wilderness. Help Help us to consider ourselves as people wandering in the wilderness of this old creation, obeying you, loving you, serving you, even in the wilderness, all the while longing for that promised land. Help us, Father, not to consider these words as though they were far off from us. Any more than we would consider your Son as far away from us. But you are near to us, God. And your Son rules over us right now here in West Jefferson. as He sits at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And Father, though He has torn down many veils in His life, death, and resurrection, we long for that last veil, that veil between what is visible and invisible to be torn in two, that we might behold You, our God, with resurrected eyes. that we might dwell with you and be made perfectly blessed for all eternity. And Father, while we long for that and we wait for that by faith, help us to live now in the things that we can see, touch, taste, and smell. Help us to live here in these things by faith in those things which we have yet to experience or see. Help us to obey you now and to believe you now. That we would not be drawn away by the gods of the nations and peoples and cultures surrounding us. That you would deliver us from that evil that we see in the words of sacred scripture that your people Israel fell into. That we would learn. And Father, we thank you that we are in a better place, that the new is better than the old, that you have written your law in our hearts, on our hearts, in such a way now that we love it. That it is not something external to us, but it is something internal conforming us to the image of your Son. And that you have given us your Spirit to sustain us and to cause us to walk and all the things that You have prepared for us. Oh, Father, as You are ruling over us through Your Son and by Your Spirit now, we ask that You would take these truths and plant them deep with us. As we go throughout the weeks, that everything that we see and hear, taste, touch, and smell would cause us to behold our invisible God and give you thanks and praise because this earth is full of your handiwork and the heavens that we look to proclaim your glories and your kindnesses and help us to realize that awe-inspiring truth that all of these things are for our good are for our salvation, are for our eternal good. And as we contemplate that truth, cause it to lift our minds to the truth that though you are so good to us here and now, God, that we can't even imagine 
what you have prepared for us in the new heavens and earth. Oh Lord Jesus, come quickly. Deliver us. But while we wait, hold us fast. Sustain us. And cause us to count your delay. Not only as our own salvation, but for for the salvation of our brothers and sisters who right now are lost sheep. Help us to continue the ministry and the labor of our King who humbled Himself to seek and save that which is lost. Help us as His bride to continue as His helpmate to do that labor in this world. So that this earth would be filled with your praises as the waters cover the seas. Oh, Father, we are just a bunch of nobodies here in West Jefferson. But you have told us that you take the simple and despised and foolish things of the world to overturn the wisdom of the world. And so we glory in our simpleness, in our weakness, in our insignificance. We glory in it knowing that you will be proven right by your children. And so we glory not in our strength, not in what we will accomplish, but because you, our great God, have made yourself known to us and have caused us to know you, not just in word, but in heart. So Father, help us this day to think about these things, to meditate on them as we enter into a time of prayer and reflection. Cause them to grip us, if not now, if not today, in the coming days, weeks, and months ahead. Use these words, Father. Use your holy word in our lives to sustain us. And we ask all of these things of you in faith, knowing that that is just what you are doing. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.